Hey guys, and welcome to the Image Junkies podcast. We're at episode 10. I hope the new year is treating you well. I'm glad to be back at work. If uh, Actually, that's not quite true. I could do with a bit more time off, but hey, I enjoy what I do, so I can't complain too much. Today's interview I've got for you is a little bit different. It's actually an interview with me. Um, back in 2015, November 2015, I was interviewed by one of my favorite podcasts, which is the Multimedia Week podcast. And uh, I thought, you know what, this interview was good fun, gave a lot of really useful information. And for a lot of you guys, you probably don't really know who I am or, or what my experience is, what my background is. So I thought this might be really useful to introduce my own experiences and talk about a lot of things that matter to me. If you, are, if you do have time and you're in the market for some more podcasts, I highly recommend the Multimedia Week podcast. Um, that's, it's run by the guys who run the master's course for, let me just check exactly which university is so I don't get in trouble, the IMMJ MA course. So that is uh, the University of Bolton Visual and Multimedia Journalism. I'm just looking on their webpage now. But it's actually ran out of China. Um, so they run this fantastic MA course out of China, which I would love to have the time to do. That would be pretty amazing. But anyway, Sharon Lovell interviewed me. It was great fun. And without further ado, here we are. Should we just kick off with your background a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, I've, I've had a bit of a strange sort of career so far. It's not exactly your sort of classic video journalist's career path. Although saying that, what, what is, I guess? I mean, everyone, everyone seems to reach this sort of job through some, some odd route. But um, yeah, I started off as a salesman in local, for a local cable channel in Leicester, where I'm from, mm -hmm. trying, to sell, uh, trying to sell advertising space. Hated it. Uh, one day the local presenter didn't turn up so I said, uh, for the local news. I said, oh, I'll do that. So bizarrely, I found myself presenting on a local cable news channel around Leicester in the UK. Uh, used that to beef up my CV, applied for a job with ITN in London. Um, so anyone who's not from the UK, they're, they're the sort of big terrestrial news rivals of the BBC. Uh, and I got a job there as a runner, or what they called a general assistant, basically making the tea, fetching the newspapers, that sort of thing. And that was straight out of school, right? That was pretty much straight out of school. Uh, straight out of university, yeah. So this was all right. when I was sort of like 21. So we're going back about sort of 16, 17 years now. Um, so, and then at that point, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Part of me wanted to be a sort of on-screen reporter. Uh, and then I started hanging out with the camera guys there um, who were really friendly, really helpful. And I thought, oh, these, you know, these are really cool guys. And they would take me out on shoots and I'd sort of ask them lots of, questions and they'd let me shoot some some general shots for them for practice and I thought wow this is really cool so I sort of changed direction as to what I wanted to do got more and more into the camera work uh, and eventually after sort of you know being seen as very keen and enthusiastic got a job there as a trainee cameraman for ITM did that for about two years and then I'd applied for a number of jobs uh, as what they called an ENG cameraman, ENG camera, you know, uh, basically shooting news on location because I was mainly just doing live broadcasts and studio work. Um, and I wasn't getting them, so I applied for a job with BBC Regional News doing that and, and got it. Worked in Manchester on the local news in, uh, in the northwest for two years and then eventually got a job with the national news for BBC based in London. And that was about 11 years ago. And then I've never looked back. So 
from being a sort of traditional news cameraman for many years. I came to South Africa as the Africa Bureau cameraman and editor, and I did that here for about three and a half years. That was in Cape Town? No, based in Johannesburg. And while I was here, I was working with a brilliant guy called Andrew Harding, um, who really encouraged me to get much more involved in the editorial storytelling side of things. You know, what he didn't want was a good technician. He wanted to work with a journalist who understood how to tell stories and could work solo if needed. And, and so he really sort of pushed me to work on my editorial skills, understand how to structure a piece, what works, what doesn't, uh, and get much more involved in the storytelling, which up until that point I hadn't really done. I'd been maybe like a lot of sort of traditional news cameramen. Sometimes you get so into the technical side of things that it can be easy to forget that you're there to actually tell a story um, and, and just getting a good picture isn't always good enough. So he really helped me to develop those skills. And then when, I, uh, when my stint in South Africa finished and I returned to the UK, um, after sort of being a jobbing cameraman around London for a while, I got offered a, a, an attachment to BBC World News as a video journalist, um, working mainly solo, sometimes with reporters. Uh, and I did that, loved it, did my six months, went back to being a cameraman, but realised my, my real love was, you know, working solo as a video journalist, um, putting together my own pieces, trying to be more creative than traditional TV news allowed. And then perfect timing, the perfect uh, opportunity came up to move back to South Africa as a video journalist, um, working solo, mainly working for the uh, online, BBC Online, but also you know, my work usually goes out on, is broadcast on BBC World News um, television as well. So, so that's sort of my, my career path really. So it's, 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 it's been a, an interesting career so far and who knows where it's going to go next. I've no idea. So is it freelance or is it kind of on a regular basis for BBC? No, I'm afraid I've been uh, boringly staffed for about the last 15 years. I figured that you were freelancing. I didn't realise. See, and it's all pretty much all for online. Yeah, I mean, uh, all, all of my work is for online, but a lot of it also runs um, on BBC World News as well, the TV channel. How is it different working online? So you've worked for BBC Broadcast and now online for, what, the past six months. So how different is that? I mean, the biggest difference is that I work alone. Um, sometimes I'll work with other people, but it's becoming rarer and rarer. So I'd say the biggest difference is when you're doing, uh, and, and I think this is across the board, this isn't just a BBC thing, but usually the, the big international broadcasters, if you're covering a story, you'll usually be a team of three. There'll be the sort of shoot, edit cameraman, there'll be a producer, and there'll be a, a reporter, an on-screen reporter. And, and that's pretty much the model for most international broadcasters. But for online, you know, I, I, get a, I, I mainly work alone, which has given me a lot more creative freedom, actually, um, sometimes mm -hmm. to mess it up, of course. But, mm -hmm. but I'd say that's the biggest difference in terms of, you know, the actual day-to-day -day job. I mean, filming is filming, you know, whether, whether it's for online or, or broadcast, you know, sure. getting good pictures. I, I, I haven't really... I don't shoot anything in a particularly different way than I did. It's just the way of working is a bit different. Um, but what about sort of, you know, formats, you know, because you're not working necessarily to that kind of broadcast formula anymore. So how does that change, you know, in, ter in terms of, you know, time lengths and stuff like that? Do you have like certain segments that you have to fill or? 
No, it's been very, very flexible, which has been fantastic. Um, and I think, you know, web, web video sort of for, for all, all across the, the net, people are still trying to work out exactly what works and what doesn't. And I've been lucky enough to be given a lot of flexibility with regards length, with regards structure, with regards style. So, for example, I very rarely, um, you know, do a traditional news piece with a reporter and voiceover script. Um, you know, I'll often focus on particular characters. By the way, apologies if you can hear a baby crying in the background. That's my, my son no, no in the problem. next room. Um, <laughs> we were, we've always, um, we're always featuring uh, babies on the show. No? Oh, great stuff. <laughs> yeah, so, so basically just a lot of freedom to experiment, really. You know, I, I find traditional broadcast news is, 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 has become, you know, almost a bit cliched. I mean, I don't think that's any secret to say that. The sort of reporter stand-up, two clips you know, three sequences with, with voiceover. Uh, and to be honest, I really enjoy the freedom of working online and being able to experiment and try, try different ways of telling those stories, really. As a viewer, I, I switch off a little bit if I'm watching a piece and suddenly a, a man in a suit stands in front of the camera and says, you know, people like these pointing behind him. I, that, that turns me off. So I love just actually letting the people behind tell their own stories as much as possible. Sure. Okay, so should we get on to um, your book? Um, I'm not sure if people have heard of the first edition, um, but it, it's now on its second edition, right? That's right. Um, basically, I wrote a book more for myself a couple of years ago, um, just about, it, it was everything, the way I thought of it was everything I wish I'd have known when I was starting out working as a sort of foreign news cameraman. And... Um, so I wrote this book and I didn't really know what to do with it. I, do, I didn't particularly want to try and sell it at that point. So I contacted the Rory Pectrust and sent them a copy and they were really interested. And last year they put it on sale through their website. So the first edition was just purely sold for charity through the Rory Pectrust. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think we made about three and a half thousand pounds. And then um, I'd agreed with them before that it would only be on sale with them for about a year. And oh my gosh. The, my son's getting uh, very agitated next door. Um, so we, we agreed that it would be on sale for them for a year and that expired a couple of months ago. So I thought it was a good chance to rewrite it and try and get it out there. So I've finished uh, writing a second edition. It's been updated. I've sort of added extra sections and padded out the bits that were already there, you know, added a bit more information, added some more interviews with, with um, colleagues and, and people I've met along the way. And it's currently at the editors, um, tidying up all my terrible typos, and will hopefully be on sale um, for the Amazon Kindle and also via my website, hopefully later this year. So if anyone's interested, if they go to imagejunkies.net slash camera confidential, uh, I'll keep uh, an update there of when, it, when exactly it's going to be released. Yeah, and no, I've had a quick look through this edition and the last. Um... And, you know, I think it's just a brilliant book. I like the way it's so simple and the, and the fact that it kind of addresses all the stuff that you need to know that you often, you know, often sort of training or university just doesn't deliver. Um, we do try quite hard on our programme to deliver a lot of that stuff, actually. Um, and I think that comes from the fact that we are all working professionals. But certainly when I was in school, I came out completely unprepared and I think your book kind of hits most of the spots that it really needs to, you know, in terms of how to 
you you know it's not it's just not enough to be a journalist you have kind of got to have a business head these days and you have got to think about insuring yourself and your gear so yeah I think it's kind of a must-have really for any starter oh brilliant and that's exactly what I was trying to do it was all the stuff nobody ever tells you you know like how to fill out a carne um you know how to pack your gear um, you know, simple things that no one ever really sits you down and tells you and you just sort of learn through trial and error. And I just thought this was a good way to just write all that down and, and, and share the knowledge really. Share, you know, because I've, I've learned the hard way through trial and error over the last few years. So it just seemed a good way to, to spread that information and make it easier for other people. Sure. And it's brilliant, you know, just in terms of the way that you sort of incorporate, you know, this kind of move to digital. And even though you're not a freelancer yourself, it really applies to so many freelancers and the reality is these days you're probably more likely to go into a kind of freelance position than a staff position. So you start off the book kind of by saying that, you know, this sort of switch into online news has brought, you know, both challenges and opportunities. Um, so what do you think are some of the toughest challenges and the most exciting opportunities? I mean, I think the toughest challenges are, are sort of what I've already touched on, which is that the book stops with you. You know, you, you are often now working alone, which although creatively can be great, it, it can also be very nerve wracking, especially if you're starting out and you're suddenly, you know, having to not only think about what, what stories you want to do, but how you're going to do them, the logistics, managing the safety side of things, working out your kit, getting to the location, then trying to worry about the technical side of filming while still keeping your interviewees happy, following the story. I think they're the biggest challenges, are, are just the logistics and the technical side of things, I would, I would say. I sure. think the, the opportunities, though, are, are immense. Um, and, you know, coming from a traditional cameraman background, I, I always say that those who can already shoot, i.e. mainly cameramen um, who who aren't having to learn that skill afresh you know because a lot of VJs and multimedia journalists and so on in my experience and maybe you'll disagree Sharon because you know you you meet a lot regularly but it seems they're often either print journos or producers you know who who have picked up camera skills later on or seen that it's a valuable skill and started trying to learn and 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 I think it's a lot easier for those who are already experienced cameramen who know how to shoot who know how to edit who understand storytelling to make that transition into sort of one-man band VJing uh, multimedia journalism. And I don't know if you'd agree it's the same perhaps with photographers, you know, that it, I think if you're from a photography background as well, similar sort of thing, rather than if you're a, a print journalist trying to learn photography. Is that something you would agree with? Yeah, well, it's actually sort of, what I've found in the last kind of like four or five years is things are actually changing a little bit. So our programme actually did start off as a photography programme. And then we just kind of felt that actually training people to, for, to be just photographers isn't quite enough. Slowly sort of morphed and evolved. But even then, for the first couple of years, it was still very much photographers who kind of wanted to expand their skill set. So we get a lot of young or middle-aged photographers that just felt like we've got to get to grips with video. And so they were already sort of storytellers, but often lacked writing skills, certainly video and editing skills. And then after that, it was a real mix-up. So we got writers who would want to come in and had been asked to basically do video, but hadn't been given any training <laughs> and wanted to sort of expand them, you know, their skill set. 
still photographers and now more and more we're seeing like fresh graduates who straight out of kind of a journalism undergrad are realizing that if they want to be a journalist they are actually going to have to have like a range of skills and that's not to say not to specialize you know we definitely encourage people to have some specialisms but to have a broad range of skills that they can draw upon when they need to so it's really changed, actually. It's really changed. Yeah, and, and I suspect that will keep on changing, especially as sort of more and more graduates and young people sort of, you know, learn those skills from a young age and, and can already shoot and edit when they mm -hmm. start training as a journalist. But, um, I mean, my, my biggest problem, and I, I have a lot of arguments online with sort of, you know, some traditional news cameramen, and not all, because, you know, a lot of them are amazing guys and really, you know, moving with the times. But a lot of people see this model, the video journalism model, as a threat, uh, a lot of traditional cameramen. Mm -hmm. And I, I always say to them, look, this is an amazing opportunity if you want to grab it with both hands, because you've already got the skills. Instead of moaning that there's a producer now with a small mm -hmm. camera taking your job, why aren't you promoting yourself as a video journalist and, and saying, actually, I can work alone now because I've already got the shooting and editing skills. I'm happy asking questions. I understand how to tell a story. And I think, actually, you know, although it's a scary time for those in traditional roles, you know, like a sort of news cameraman, I think for those prepared to sort of grab the opportunity and run with it, um, I, think, I think it's actually quite an exciting time. Um, you know, I, as I always say, though, the biggest problem will be whether the, the, the pay reflects all the extra work, you know, but uh, I'm sure that's something we're all, all struggling with across the industry, but probably not the place to get into that right now. Sure, yeah, no, but it's either no work or work for less money. I mean, that's just the reality of budgets today, right? I mean, when those budgets have, those kind of huge budgets in general have already gone and um, they're not going to come back. <laughs> so following on from that, if people do want to move from traditional broadcast shooting into online video or younger journalists who are just starting out in the genre, what do you think that, online video creators really need to get their heads around in terms of shooting and storytelling? I always say good video is good video. And I mean, if you can shoot, you can shoot. And whether that's for broadcast, online, you know, and any sort of medium at all, if you, if you can shoot, then that's, that's, that's the main thing. And if, you know, a good video will work on all platforms, really. Uh, the difference, I guess, for online video is more the editing, I find. Um, you know, you can be a lot more creative in your edit. The way you tell the story can be more creative. You know, you don't have to stick to the sort of, you know, two minute sort of news piece with the piece to camera and the, and the two clips. You know, you can play around um, and, and also be a lot more creative in your edit in terms of the use of text, the use of music, the use of graphics. Mm -hmm. All these things seem to be a lot more accepted online than they are on a traditional uh, news bulletin. You know, for example, I would say probably 90% of my pieces now have music somewhere in them, have animated text on the screen, basically filling in the gaps of the story where maybe traditionally you would have a news reporter writing a script line. I might now do that with, with two lines of text animating over some nice pictures, you know. So I think you can be a lot more creative. But I always, what I don't understand is why TV still sticks to the traditional... I mean, we're talking about news specifically here. So with news, why it sticks to a traditional mm. news look. I mean, 
you know, I think all broadcasters, uh, and maybe my figures aren't exactly right here, but are, are sort of hemorrhaging audiences, especially young audiences. But at the same time, no one's willing to say, well, you know what, this sort of online style does work well and does draw in a young audience. Why aren't we being more experimental for TV? And I think some people are trying and it will get there eventually, but I'm surprised at how slowly the sort of traditional news piece uh, is is developing or, or not developing, should we say. Yeah, I mean, I just wonder how long it's going to be before the two things kind of almost completely merge, you know, where just people are creating for online and people are watching TV online. Yeah, well, that's a good point. I mean, I, I, for example, use Google Chromecast. So although I use my TV as a viewing device, I'm actually watching online video on it, if you see what I mean. So you're right, the, the terminology of TV and online and everything is just going to get more and more confusing. And you've now got, you know, like Vice bringing out their own news channel. So I, I think it is, it all goes I full think circle, there is yeah. going to be a big sort of, a big overhaul and perhaps we're going to sort of see a real end to the traditional broadcast format um, in the not too distant future. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And, and I think the broadcasters know that. I mean, if you watch CNN or BBC World or any of these channels, you are seeing more and more use of creative video. Um, maybe not so much on your traditional news bulletins, you know, your sort of six o'clock news is that sort of thing. But on the news channels, I'm noticing a lot more willingness to experiment and try different things. And, you know, long, long may that continue. Just leading on from that, you, in, in the book, you kind of talk about creating mobile video content. And I just wonder what you think about, you know, people consuming video online, on mobile, and how you specifically think about creating that kind of content. I think, I think good, good online video should work across, you know, whether you're watching it sort of on your phone or, or on, your, on your laptop or whatever. Um, one, one thing I'm interested in watching, I'm not sure if you mentioned this in your question because the line broke up, but it, it creates mm -hmm. such huge arguments, this whole vertical video thing, and, and traditionalists get so <laughs> angry about it and so determined that, no, mm -hmm. we must never have vertical video, the eyes aren't vertical, why should we watch anything vertical? And as a viewer, though, I hate having to turn my phone horizontally. It annoys me having to sort of turn my phone around. I know that sounds a silly thing to say, but I'm, I'm sure millions of people feel exactly the same as I do. And, and so therefore, mm -hmm. I, I think there will be more use of vertical video uh, aimed specifically at mobile, people watching on mobile. But, and this is where I sort of try and keep everybody happy, and maybe this is unrealistic. I think the, the secret would be to use responsive video and, and so in other words whatever you are watching on the video is maximized for that viewing device so for example the new york the new york times i don't know if you saw this piece the new york times did a thing with justin bieber about the behind the scenes making of his song where are you now this was a couple of months ago i saw it, it was brilliant i'll post a link to that with the show yeah and and that that proved that on a technical level this this the technology is there you know it just means if anything, the argument that it's sort of, you know, vertical video lowers, um, you know, lowers standards and things is rubbish because actually these guys shot this in 6K. I mean, you know, they shot this really super high resolution so that they, they could reframe the video and it would still maintain resolution depending on what, you know, what device you were watching it on. And it looked amazing. And, it, you know, I've, I've watched it on both to see the difference. And frankly, it worked really well on both devices. And I think that will start happening more and more as the technology, 
you know, gets easier to use, you know, because the editing of that has complications, but I'm sure that will get easier. And to me, that seems an obvious way around it so that, you know, you maximize your video content so it's responsive depending on what device you're watching on. And I guess that just means a bit more effort in post-production. But people like me who are too lazy to turn their phones around, that way they'll still get good video uh, and the traditionalists don't have to moan about it. You know, everyone's happy. Yeah, I mean, I would be sad to lose horizontal video, but I, I'm certainly not opposed to playing around with vertical. And like you say, I mean, I think it just creates a different kind of space that can also be used really creatively by having double images or using that extra space to kind of supplement the story somehow. Exactly, yeah. I mean, you know, it opens up a whole new world. I mean, for people like myself who love just playing around and experimenting, just think of all the things you could do, how you could use like the extra headspace to do something funky. You know, there, there, there's so many ideas you could play with. But you're right. I mean, I, I would also hate to see the end of horizontal video. And, and I don't think we will because of the way laptops and TVs are designed and cinema screens. I don't think that will ever go, but I think there's space for both. I already notice my own habits. If I'm watching something on my mobile, which is longer than five minutes, like a little web documentary, I'm going to flip my screen around. But if it's AJ plus short one minute piece, I'm probably not. So I think it's just about sort of incorporating what works for the time frame and for the format. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, what I, what I usually do now as well, if a video is longer than a couple of minutes, I just email the link to myself and watch it on my, on my computer or, or using my Google Chromecast at home later on, you know. So phone I find brilliant mm -hmm. for shorter stuff. I'm not so keen on watching the longer form stuff on it. But, but I know a lot of people are, so it'll be interesting to see how, how that develops. Great. Okay, so on to uh, being a salesman and sort of networking. I think that's a really important part of the book, actually. And, and you know, that's definitely something that you often just don't get either when you're training or, at, or when you're in university. And it's something that I think I avoided for quite, for quite a long time. And the more I've just gotten used to it and doing it in a way that's comfortable for me, actually, it's become really fun. Freelancing, especially as a photographer, can be quite a lonely you know it can be quite a lonely path yeah um and just by kind of networking and I've you know I've got this recent sort of collaboration going on Instagram with a bunch of foreign and Chinese photographers it's just been really inspiring actually definitely and I, I think it's important to even if you're a staff member as I am at a big organization I think it's really important to still try and have that freelance mindset this sounds a bit you know, a bit pretentious, but like your own brand. Some of the things I see people writing on public forums is I think they're, they're, they're weakening their own personal brand, you know, and I'm a, I'm a big believer now in this age of whether you love it or hate it, of social media and everybody being in the spotlight. I'm a big believer that that can really work for you or it can really work against you. Um, and I think it's really important if you're a freelancer particularly, but even for staff members to really sort of market yourself. And, and I don't mean in a sort of annoying in your face way, but to mm -hmm. be willing to share your successes and also share your failures, but in a way people can relate to and feel they're getting to know you and want to be part of your world and want to work with you. I mean, I've had various offers for assignments uh, through sort of social media and things, and I've helped people I've met on social media find find jobs and find assignments because we've met and clicked through sort of networking via social media and, and also face to face. And I, I think, you know, a lot of people 
think, well, I'm really talented at what I do. I shouldn't have to market myself. People should come to me. And, you know, that's great. And there are a few people who can get away with that. But, you know, I think that's getting rarer and rarer. I think, I think to survive in this industry now, you've got to be willing to market yourself, meet people, give out your number, you know, get to know, like you're doing with Instagram, getting to know new people, new groups of people, because it's never going to hurt you. Knowing more people is never going to hurt you in this job. So, you know, I, I say just embrace it and, and go with it and enjoy enjoy the journey. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I just think you have to get a little entrepreneurial about how you make your income. Yeah, no, exactly. And and, and, I, and I, think, uh, I think there's still too many people relying on the phone to ring. Uh, I mean, I don't know if this is the same perhaps in the fields you're working in, but I see it in broadcast news, you know people sort of sitting at home moaning that they're not getting called. And then I'll say, well, you know, what, what are you doing to change that? And they're like, well, nothing. And I'm like, have you got a website? No. Okay. Are you, are you tweeting? No, I'm not into that. Okay. Um, you know, and I, and, and they're like, well, why should I have to do all these things? I've proved myself over the last 10 years. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people are sort of shooting themselves in the foot like that. And, um, I think it's a real shame, but I think a lot of young people are really grasping this. Um, I'm often getting messages from sort of young people in the position I was in 10, 15 years ago, uh, reaching out, you know, oh, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, any advice. And then we become, you know, contacts and, and you almost don't, you know, as, as the sort of the older guys I've sadly sort of become, you, you don't mind and, and you, you sort of find yourself investing in them and wanting to see them do well. And that's because they've took the effort to, to network with you and, and to sort of open themselves up a little bit to you. And I think that will pay dividends for them and also for you as the sort of, you know, the, the, the older person in that, in that relationship as well. And, you know, fair play to them. I think, I think more and more people are, are understanding that and knowing how to do it well without you know, without sounding like they just want something off you all the time, which some people can be guilty of. Um, I just want to move on to kind of storytelling, just to talk about it. You sort of talk about it a lot in your book and you touched on earlier the difference between just being a technical shooter and understanding storytelling. And it sounds like you've been doing that for some time now, you know, with some encouragement. And I just wonder what kind of tips you've got, both for sort of longer um, and shorter form video. Yeah, I mean, I always say to people, there's no cookie cutter like secret tip, unfortunately. But I always think if you if you approach every story trying to sort of think, okay, what, you know, who are my characters? You know, what what am I actually trying to say with this film? The most important thing is to think beginning, middle, and end. I think a lot of people will get a a load of good interviews and a load of good B-roll and then not have a clue how to sort of structure that into a film that makes sense. So I always, before I do any shoot, I literally sit down the night before and I sort of structure in my head, what do I think the story is? What, what sound bites do I think I'm gonna get? What questions should I be asking? And what, what shots would best illustrate that story? And now often these go straight out the window as soon as I get onto the location but it just helps me in my head to sort of have a structure and be thinking about the story. Because I find if you just turn up and just sort of shoot, sometimes you, you're not really in it, you're just shooting, you're not really thinking through how it's part of a bigger story. And I think that's really important to think of every sequence as, as a chapter in a book, you know, okay, well, how does this link the beginning to the middle? You know, what sequence will work 
to open this piece? You know, how do I introduce this character? I think the most important things are to always think particularly about your beginning and your end. You need to hook the viewer within the first five to ten seconds with a good image and some good sound and then you need to leave them feeling they've learned something from that piece. And I think if you can sort of approach every shoot thinking how you're going to do that, then I, then I think you're onto a, onto a winner. Um, but at the same time, you also want to try and keep it simple. You don't want to overthink things and you don't want to approach your storytelling you know, with a preconceived idea of what the story is. You need to be open-minded and willing to completely throw your previous ideas out the window. So that, 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 that's sort of my basic advice. And also, quite frankly, everything changes when you get to the edit anyway. The amount of times I think I'm going to tell a story one way and I start editing and I end up telling it completely the other way around is, is, is probably every other piece. But that's just experience and trial and error. And my biggest storytelling advice to anyone is just go out and make as many films as you can and just practice. Just be willing to throw half of them away, but just get out there and just shoot and practice and try putting them together and just see what works and what doesn't. Yeah, I definitely second that. I get a lot of students, and myself as well, I was definitely guilty of it. Before they've even gone out there and done that drilling of just production, they want to do the best story. Don't save shooting for a great idea because you're going to make loads of mistakes. You know, just get out there and shoot. Do kind of one day story, do a two day story, do a few day story and just keep the sort of discipline up of producing short form stuff. And then when you do get to that great story, you're going to be prepared for it. Exactly. No, I think that's really good advice, Sharon. And, and to be honest, this, this, this is something I'm always telling people because so often people come up to me or they email me and they say, oh, I really want to do what you're doing, but I don't have any equipment. You know, I'm saving up to buy this or I'm saving up to buy that. So when I've got that equipment, I'm going to start shooting. And I always write back to them saying, well, don't you have a phone? Can't you buy a compact camera for like, you know, a little Sony for like 200 pounds that you could buy on any street corner? Uh, and they're like, yeah, but that's not professional kit. And it's like, it doesn't matter. Just, just get the skills, practice. Your phone's as good to practice with as anything else. And if you get so hung up on the, on the kit, or like you say, finding the perfect story, you're never going to develop and you're never going to get better. You just got to get out there and shoot. And make a story about the day in the life of your dog or something, if you've got nothing else to do. But just make a story that has a beginning, middle and end and edit it together and learn from it. Good. Okay, so we're not going to talk about kit too much uh, but this is a personal question because uh, I, I want to know how that Sony is working out for you because um, I know you switched from the sort of big heavy shoulder camera to a much lighter Sony setup and, and I was kind of humming and hawing for about a year about sticking with Canon and, and moving up to a C100 or, or going down the Sony route. Well, I must say, I've, I've, I was shooting. I mean, I've always been a bit of a Sony, a bit of a Sony geek. Um, I previously, mm -hmm. I used to shoot on a Sony PMW 500, which, like you say, big, heavy, shoulder-mounted camera. Great camera, actually. Uh, you know, I used to use all the sort of heavy broadcast kit, and you know, you get brilliant pictures with those. But the weight is too much for a one-man band. You can't be lugging all that kit around on your own, doing the sort of work that you and I do. Um, it, it's just unrealistic. So I decided to move to a Sony a7S. Uh, there's now a Sony a7S Mark II, but I haven't tried that. And for anyone who doesn't know, it's a great, it, it looks like a DSLR, it's a mirrorless camera. Um, small, it's compact, uh, E-mount lenses, 
Um, and, it, and, it, and to be honest, the image quality is outstanding. I love it. And I'm not even using it to the best of its ability. I mean, I shoot in crop sensor mode. I use a cheap 18 to 200 mil lens on it. So I'm not making mm -hmm. the most of that camera. And I still think it looks brilliant. Uh, I've got a little radio mic kit, which I use with it. I've got the Sony XLR K1M uh, audio rig that sort of goes on top and plugs directly into the, into the hot shoe. Um, and you know what? I, I would challenge anyone except maybe a very, very experienced cameraman to look at the pieces that I'm producing and be able to spot the difference between that and the, the kit I was using before, which probably cost about 15 times more. Now there's drawbacks, of course there is, you know, there, there's limitations onto the versatility of it. The times I miss my big camera and the sort of versatile lens that I used to have on that are things like shooting GVs in a market. Like now I have to really get into people's faces to get a good shot. Uh, whereas before I used to be able to just pick up a nice close-up of someone's face from about 20 meters away and not have to have that debate with them about what I'm doing and why I'm in their face. But, you know, but now I sort of have to go over and, and you know, and, which is probably a good thing morally to go over and sort of say hi and sort of, uh, you know, make myself known to them. It just slows everything down a lot. But in general, you know what, I'm, I'm, I, I don't want to ever go back to the big shoulder-mounted kit. I, I love working with the Sony. I think it's a great camera. Um, but I'm not tied to it. I quite happily try any other camera, so I don't want people to think I'm a sort of Sony fanboy. Sure. But if you're thinking about it, I'd definitely say, yeah, it's a good camera, and you know, I'm sure you'll make the most of it and won't regret it. Uh, that's a surprise for me. Um, I thought you would say that the drawback would have been, you know, just a bit more hassle in terms of audio and miking up. Not really. I mean, it, it was always nice to have four channels of audio, which is what I used to have before and sort of built in XLRs. But you know what? The, mm -hmm. It was very rare I ever used more than two audio inputs anywhere. I mean, it's it, probably a couple of times a year I'd need more than two audio input. So mm -hmm. with, with the, uh, the XLR adapter that you can get for the A7S, that has two XLR inputs anyway. So I'm, I'm able to, to still do most of the things I did before. When I want to, I can still rig a shotgun mic on top and, and be running a radio mic at the same time. And the other trick, of course, um, which, you know, if you're shooting DSLR, you'll know all about, is if you want a third channel of audio, um, use, an, use an external audio recorder. And, you know, I use Final Cut Pro 10 to edit, and it's so easy now to sync up, you know, a, a, another track of audio recorded onto a Marantz or something like that. I could plug a second radio mic into a Marantz recorder and have three mics running. And it's not that difficult to then sync them up afterwards. And so therefore, I'm not really losing that much in terms of audio. I remember picking up some great audio tips from you, like very simple, but great. I remember one that was just basically keep the boom mic plugged in on a long cable and then throw it off to an assistant when you need, which I still do now all the time. Have you got any other good kind of run and gun, one man band audio tips? Yeah, I mean, my biggest tip that I always say to everybody, um, and I, I can't claim to have come up with this phrase, but I love it, is I had an argument once with someone about why wide-angle lenses are, are better for news, and they would say, no, no, long lenses, long lenses. And uh, there was a reporter sat with me in the car, and we were discussing it, and he turned around to me and he said, do you know what the best thing about a wide-angle lens is? I said, what's that? He said, better sound. And when you think about it, it's so true. And I've sort of stolen that line as my own, but it's so true because if you're using a wide angle lens, you're forced to get right in close to people's faces and therefore you're gonna get good audio. If you're right in the story, you're gonna get good audio. 
a little shotgun mic on top of your camera or sometimes even the internal mic if you're close enough is going to pick up really nice audio thanks to having a wide angle lens and getting right in the middle of the action and I always say that's my sort of number one sound tip for anyone is just get right in the middle of it. I guess a, a, another sort of tip that I always try and stick to although sometimes I can be as lazy as anyone else is even when you're shooting GVs to try and put a sort of like general views or just a, a normal sequence of someone doing something incredibly dull is I'll try and put a radio mic on someone in that scene just to get sort of better natural sound, you know, as they sort of greet the person walking past them or that sort of thing, which you might not pick up unless you're right in their face and it just lifts a sequence. If you're filming someone going shopping in the market, make sure you put a radio mic on them as well because, you know, inevitably you'll be filming a cutaway shot in the other direction as they say something really great and you're like, oh, I wish I'd have had a mic across that. So if you just keep someone mic'd up as much as possible and use a wide angle lens, I'd say that's sort of two tips that will, will get you out of trouble 90% of the time. Great, yeah, I love, I actually, I really love those two tips. Going back to, um, I was reading through your book or the draft of it this week, and this is something we sort of touch on in class all the time, but not only in class, this is something that I touch on with other professionals all the time, is ethics and setting up stuff. So I come from a photojournalist background and that, you know, it's basically how I worked for the first sort of five, six years of my career before moving into any video at all. You know, in the beginning, the idea of sort of setting up a shot for video just didn't even occur to me because it's so out of bounds, you know, in terms of photography. But, you know, the temptation was there quite early because if you miss a shot, you know, with a still, you just kind of figure you, you've missed it and you'll have to, to get something else later. Whereas with video, if you miss a shot, you've really stumbled your sequence and there is kind of no getting it later. I think, you know, you had some really interesting stuff in the book there and it'd be great just to run through kind of your, you know, your key thoughts on that. For me now, I, I don't set stuff up, but I will ask, I can see that they're just about to do something. I'll ask them to hold five, 10 seconds until I'm ready. As someone who's been working in the field for such a long time and moved from broadcast to online, it'd be great to get your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I, generally the same sort of thing as you're saying there, in that my first rule is never get in the way of real life. You know, I'd never tell someone to do something they're not comfortable with or wouldn't want to do. I'd never tell them to say something they wouldn't actually be saying anyway. Um, you know, so I'd, I'd never sort of set something up in that sense. And I usually try and just say to people, if let's say I just need a sequence of, you know, I'm doing a story about a, a novelist and I need a sequence of him writing. And I say, what are you doing today? He says, oh, it's my day off. Then I might suggest, well, maybe it might not be your day off. Maybe you could write a couple of hundred words for me. You know, is, is, is that morally wrong? Because I've asked him to work when he wasn't planning on it. I, I, I don't really think it is. I'm not sort of asking him to do something he wouldn't usually be doing. So I think you've got to be a bit flexible, you know, because with, with us, we, you, know, you know what it's like. We don't have the time to let real life play out all the time. And I'm not saying we would ever falsify it, but you might try and compress the time a little bit more by saying, OK, well... You were going to walk your dog at four o'clock, but actually I have to leave at three. Is there any chance you can walk your dog now? You know, do you know what I mean? Things like that. So I would never ask them to do something they wouldn't usually do. Um, but I, you know, I am willing to ask them to maybe shuffle their schedule around. Like you say, hold something, you know, if they're blending a, a strawberry smoothie and I see they're about to switch it on, I might say, oh, just wait, let me get a close up of your fingers as you press the on switch, that sort of thing. And I, I, I don't 
have a sort of moral or ethical issue with that. I think it's only a problem if you're trying to change the editorial thrust of a story or cheating or, mm -hmm. or getting them to say or do something that isn't actually true or that they wouldn't usually do. Um, I find the biggest problem actually, and I don't know if you have this, but people often, I find, tell you what you want to hear instead of actually saying what they think. And I find that actually the hardest thing morally to deal with because sometimes you're interviewing someone and you know they're telling you what you want to hear rather than the truth. And you're sort of saying, yeah, well, you, you know, earlier when we spoke, you sort of maybe were saying X, Y, and Z. And, and they're sort of, you know, they're trying to please you rather than actually say what they want to what, what, what they really think, and I find that can be a bit problematic. They think, oh, TV camera, they want to hear X, Y, and Z. So I'd say in some ways that's a bigger challenge than, than the pictures and, and so on, is, is trying to get genuine answers out of people who sometimes, uh, you know, don't want to tell you the, the truth. I think that's difficult both in pictures and interview, you know, in terms of you turn up with a camera and people ask, well, what should I do? You know, they kind of almost want to be directed or there's an assumption there that they will be directed. I, I sort of often start off kind of filming everything, even if I know I'm not going to use it and it's not interesting, just to kind of get people comfortable around the camera, to get people to tune out from it a little bit. Yeah, I think, I think that's really good advice, actually. I think that's really good advice, Sharon, is, is exactly that. Just get people used to your presence until they sort of stop acting like they're being filmed. I think that's, that's really good advice. Photograph them into submission. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I, I'm a big fan of The Wire, the TV show, The Wire. I don't know if you ever watched it. And I read the, the there's a book that it was, the concept was based on by, by one of the producers called David Simon called Homicide. And basically he followed the Baltimore Police Department Homicide Unit for a year. Mm -hmm. And in the introduction to that book, it says something that's always stuck with me that good journalism is just hanging out. And that's always stuck with me, and so rarely do we have the time to do that, but it's so true. If you just hang out with someone long enough, they're gonna get used to you, they're gonna stop telling you what you wanna hear, and they're gonna start actually telling you what they think, and they're gonna stop sort of, you know, waiting to be directed, and they'll just get on with their life. And, and I think if we have the time, which, you know, unfortunately budgets being what they are, we don't always, but if you have the time just to hang out with the people you're making a film with, it doesn't half make a difference in terms of the final product. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is, you know, it's fantastic when you do get kind of longer stories and, uh, and you can do that. We have to work with the reality of, you know, you often do just get a one day assignment as well. Um, I mean, the, the, sure. the main things I wanted to get across that I think have come across are that I'm sort of evangelical about you know, news cameramen being willing to sort of step up and, and be video journalists rather than technicians. And, I, and, I, and I, I hope that sort of came across in the interview as something I'm sort of really keen to see more of because there's so many talented cameramen I know out there who, um, you know, could be absolutely brilliant video journalists, but they're sort of stuck in this mindset of being cameramen and, and worrying that everyone else is taking their job instead of sort of thinking, actually, how can I make myself indispensable and sort of, you know, take other people's jobs for want of a better way of putting it. You know, I know that, sound, that doesn't sound right, but you know what I mean. So I think the key thing for me is just, just if there's any sort of, you know, cameramen out there listening, you know, to just sort of be, be, be willing to step up and step outside of their comfort zone. And I guess that's the same for anyone else. If you're a stills photographer, if you're a print journalist or anyone else and you're worried about your future, just be prepared to step outside your comfort zone and just get out there and 
try the other skills and if you're no good at it that's fine but at least give it a try and see how far you can push yourself great all right well thanks so much so there we go although that interview was um, over two years old now i feel most of that is still relevant i'm still using the same kit the book camera confidential of course is now out and you can get that uh, you can either go to my website imagejunkies.net and just follow the obvious links or you can go to amazon.com or .co.uk and search for it on there. But either way, you can now get that book that is available if you're interested. So let's just take a second. I wanted to talk while we're on the subject of podcasts about another one that I highly recommend listening to. Another one I was on actually once, a brilliant podcast, Extra Shot, the Extra Shot Cafe guys. I don't know if you have tried it, but if you haven't, it's really worth a listen. Those guys, Paul Ream, um, and Steve, the other guy, I've forgotten his name. I think it's Steve. I'm just looking on their website now. But anyway, fantastic guys, incredibly experienced. And the website is also worth a look. If you go to extrashot.co.uk, uh, it's packed with really good reviews. They do reviews in really interesting and fun ways. And I would definitely check them out. Anyway, that's it for today. Keep listening over the next few weeks because we've got some really good interviews. We interview Lenslinger. The famous Lenslinger, if you follow cameramen on social media, you've probably come across him. That's Stuart Pittman, American regional news cameraman. And he's going to be talking about covering hurricanes and tornadoes and all that fun stuff. Stuff that I've never done. Uh, so his interview next week will be packed with tips and advice and information. And then I've also interviewed to go, the, go out the following week, um, or maybe in two weeks, I'll make my mind up soon, Lee Durant, who's a former Royal Marine commando and is now a freelance cameraman. I think he's about to take up a staff position with a large international broadcaster to talk about the transition from the military to journalism and working as a cameraman. So we've got some really good interviews coming up, so do stay with us. Please leave reviews, it really does help, and spread the word on social media. If, if you can spread the word with people you know who you think might be interested, tweet me, and do tag me in tweets and things so I can see that people are actually listening. I'm at Image Junkies, both on, that's I-E-S on Image Junkies. I'm that on both Instagram and Twitter. Anyway, guys, speak to you next week. Have a fantastic week. Don't work too hard. Cheers. <laughs>